0: We read the scriptures in Genesis chapter 9 and 10. We begin at chapter 9 verse 18 and the text will run from verse 18 through 27. Then we're going to read chapter 10 as well, even though perhaps it is a bit tedious to read the genealogy, I think it's worthwhile to read that in light of The text that we're considering, and it shows us the various names and the various nations that came forth from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So let's begin reading at Genesis 9, verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, and laid it upon both their shoulders, and went backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth. And he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years, and all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and he died. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan and Tubal and Meshach and Tiras, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togarmah, and the sons of Javan, Elisha and Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families in their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizraim, and foot, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Rehama, and Sabtica, and the sons of Rehama, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kelna, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kelah, and Resen, between Nineveh and Kelah, the same as a great city. And Mizraim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lahabim, and Neftuhim and Pathrusim, and Casluhim, out of whom came Philistim, or the Philistines, and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Hath, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zamarite, and the Hamathite, and afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Geza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. Children of Shem, Elam and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud and Aram, and the children of Aram, Uz and Hul, and Gether and Mash. And Arphaxad begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber, and unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his, na- in his days was the earth divided. And his brother's name was Joktan, and Joktan begat Almodad and Sheleph and Hazar Maveth, and Jira, and Hadorim, and Uzzel, and Dikla and Obal and Ib- Ib- Abimeel, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling was from Misha, as thou goest on to sephar a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem. After their families, after their tongues, And their lands after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations and their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. The text that we are focusing on this afternoon is chapter 9, verse 18 through 27. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus, in the text that we consider today, Moses focuses our attention on the three sons of Noah. And we have seen that their genealogy appears in the next chapter after our text. The significance of the text that we consider today is not only that Here the scriptures issue a sharp warning against the gross sin of drunkenness by exposing the kind of shameful acts and grievous effects that drunkenness can produce. But the significance of the text is also that it contains a prophecy about the history of redemption from that time of Noah Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, throughout the rest of the New Testament, even to the end of time, a prophecy of the history of redemption among all the nations of the world, and a prophecy about the direction of the line of Christ. That's the significance of the text. And also by way of introduction, I need to say that because of the fact that many people have taken this text and have twisted it and abused it to justify racist attitudes, particularly by white people towards black people, we have to be very careful in our interpretation of the text. What does the text mean? Because As we know from the Christian faith and the rest of the scriptures, racist attitudes, racist arrogance, racist hatred of someone who is of a different color than myself is a sin and is wrong. So in the light of all of scripture and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we hope to give a careful explanation of the text. At the outset of our text, in verse 18, Moses reminds us that the three sons of Noah were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we should understand by that, this is the birth order. Shem was the firstborn, Ham was the second, and Japheth was the third of the sons of Noah. These three sons of Noah were among those people who were on the ark, They were among those people whom God saved by the waters of the flood in the ark. And therefore, I believe we have good reason to believe that all three of the sons of Noah were also saved by God through Jesus Christ. I'll come back to that in the sermon. These three sons of Noah represent three streams of humanity that would spread throughout the earth and produce the many nations of the world that exist today. One of those nations would be the Canaanites. We read about the Canaanites in that genealogy. The Canaanites descended from Canaan, and Canaan was the youngest son of Ham. Moses draws our attention to Canaan in the text. He mentions Canaan many times in the text. He wants us to focus on Canaan. Why is that? Well, we have to remember that Moses was writing to the Israelites of his time. They were the first readers of the passage. And the Israelites were about to go out of Egypt and go into what? The land of Canaan. And so Moses, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, Is teaching the children of Israel who the Canaanites were, what was their background, and particularly the fact that they were cursed by God because God was going to take the land away from them and give it to Israel as their free inheritance. With all that in mind, let's consider the prophecy of Noah. First of all, the occasion of the prophecy was Noah's drunkenness. Secondly, the sinful response and prophetic curse and finally the godly response and prophetic blessing we read in the text in verse 20 that noah began to be an husbandman and he planted a vineyard noah was 601 years old when he came out of the ark after the flood The meaning of the text is not necessarily that Moses or Noah began the work of a husbandman for the very first time after the flood, as if he had never done this kind of work before. It seems very likely that Noah had been a husbandman before. This was the job that he was familiar with. He knew how to cultivate the ground. He knew how to plant a vineyard. He knew how to grow grapes and how to make wine. But the idea of the text is that Noah entered a period of his life in which he was dedicated to the building of the ark. For over a hundred years, he was building the ark. And then for more than a year, he was in the ark. And then he went out of the ark. And what did he do? What did he begin to do? He began to do the work of a husbandman. He planted a vineyard. He planted rows of grapevines. And he cultivated the vineyard. He took care of the vineyard. He made sure that the grape vines were fruitful and that the grape clusters began to form. And he harvested those grapes. And he not only ate the grapes, he not only drank the juice of the grapes, but he also crushed the grapes and fermented them and brought them through that procedure which results in wine. He made wine from his Grapes. And we are told in verse 21, he drank of the wine. And if the text stopped right there, we would have nothing negative to say because there is nothing wrong to drink wine. The scriptures teach us in many places that God has given to us the gift of wine as a good gift. There's nothing wrong with drinking the fruit of the vine. There's nothing wrong with drinking a glass of wine made from grapes or strawberries or cherries or some other fruit. There's nothing wrong with drinking alcoholic beverages of other kinds as well. For example, Psalm 104 verse 15 teaches us that God has given man wine that maketh glad the heart of man. But that's not all that we read in the text. We read that he drank of the wine and was drunken. What is drunkenness? What is the meaning of the text when it says Noah was drunken? Drunkenness can be defined as the sin of idolizing alcohol and drinking it to the point of intoxication, Drunkenness is not an accident. Drunkenness does not happen by accident. Noah did not get drunk by mistake. Some people have tried to defend Noah in the text by saying, well, perhaps Noah did not know yet the intoxicating power of wine. But that's a foolish argument, isn't it? Noah was 601 or more years old at this point, and it seems clear that man had discovered the power of alcohol and wine by this point. And besides, the text is clearly meant to serve to us as a warning against the sin of drunkenness. Drunkenness is not an accident. Drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is the result of of the foolish decision to keep drinking, to have another drink and another drink and another drink until one reaches the point of intoxication. The scriptures teach that drunkenness is basically idolatry. If we have to classify it under the commandments, it is basically idolizing of alcohol. It is looking at alcohol not as a good gift of God to be enjoyed in moderation, but it looks at alcohol as a God, as a source for ultimate happiness, as a place to find ultimate pleasure. The drunkard is a person who makes the foolish decision and has the foolish thinking that if he drinks to the point of intoxication, his life will be better. He will be happier. He will have Pleasure and joy and happiness, when we know from the rest of Scripture that there's only one who can give ultimate happiness and joy, and that's God Himself. It's only by communion with God that one can truly enjoy happiness and pleasures forevermore. The drunkard is a fool, he makes a foolish decision. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, the wise man writes that wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. The drunkard has been deceived. He has believed a lie, and the lie that he believes is that drinking is going to make him happy, drinking is going to give him pleasure. So drunkenness is the sin of idolizing alcohol and drinking it to the point of intoxication. That's what Noah did. He took a drink of the wine, but then he took another drink. And he took another drink and another drink until he was fully drunk. So drunkenness can also be defined as the state or the condition of a person who has drunk too much. Drunkenness is the condition in which one has lost control over his body, over his mind, and even over his soul. It's a condition in which he has lost all discretion, all restraint, all discipline of himself. The scriptures describe the drunkard in various ways. Like in Psalm 107, verse 27, the psalmist speaks of sailors on a ship in the sea in the midst of a storm. Now picture sailors in a ship, in a storm at sea, the ship is rocking back and forth, and the, the sailors are staggering like this and reeling to and fro. And the Bible says that's what a drunkard is like. He doesn't have control of his own body. He staggers about, and he falls on the ground. The Bible indicates that a drunkard mumbles and slurs his words because he cannot pronounce them clearly. Remember Hannah? When she was in the tabernacle, she was praying with her eyes closed and her lips were moving but no sound came out and Eli thought she was drunken. That's the behavior that is typically true of the drunkard. Or remember on Pentecost when they began to speak in different tongues the wonderful works of God and some people said, they're drunken because the sounds that were coming out of their mouth sounded so strange. That's the behavior of a drunkard. A drunkard has willfully decided to be drunk. And when he becomes drunk, he acts like a fool. He laughs at things he shouldn't be laughing at. He says things he shouldn't be saying. He does things he shouldn't be doing. He starts to get into fights. He's brawling. He's swinging his fists. He's cussing out loud. He's wasting his money. And he's engaging often in sexual immorality as well. That's drunkenness. And the drunkard, when he is drunk, doesn't care what anybody thinks either. He doesn't even care what God thinks. Noah, we are told, drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. Now we have to remember who Noah was. He was the man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was the man who walked with God for hundreds and hundreds of years. He was the man who by faith built an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Noah was a mighty man of God, one of the great saints in the scripture times. But here he is, drunk, acting the fool, uncovering himself in his tent, exposing himself to the eyes of anyone who might enter into the tent. Surely we have in the text a very clear example of what we learned in the sermon this morning, that even the holiest men of God in this life have only a small beginning of obedience. Remember, Noah was an old man at this point. Although he would live another 300 plus years, he was already in his 600s, a mature, fully grown Christian man, fell into the gross sin of drunkenness. The lesson for us, the word of God to us, is that we are to take heed to ourselves, lest we fall. We must not respond to Noah's drunkenness by proudly setting ourselves up over him and scorning him and disdaining him for his weakness and his folly. But rather, let us be warned by this godly man's fall into sin and take heed to ourselves, lest we sin. And if we have fallen into this same gross sin as Noah, Maybe even recently in our lives. Let us not excuse ourselves. Let us not try to justify ourselves. Let us not say, as we hear the story of Noah's drunkenness, well, at least I'm in good company because Noah fell into drunkenness as well. But let us repent. Let us repent of our sin of drunkenness with a true godly sorrow. And let us flee to Christ who did nothing less than shed his precious blood on the cross in his love for us to cover all our sins including the sin of excessive drinking. Let us flee to Christ and lay hold on him and his cross. And let us not drink earthly wine in excess, but let us drink the spiritual wine of the blood, the blood of the Son of God, who in his love laid down his life for us on the cross. And let us not seek comfort in the bottle. Let us not seek pleasure, let us not seek to medicate and to cope with life and its difficulties through excessive drinking, but rather let us be filled with the Holy Spirit and let us flee again and again daily to Christ and his love and through communion with God, find pleasure and joy and rest in him. And finally, let us not forget that the scriptures warn us very clearly that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, verse 18, and 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10, the apostle sets forth in no uncertain terms the warning. Be not deceived, he says, for we know that no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God. And positively, in Galatians 5, verse 21, we read that temperance, Temperance, self-control, when it comes to all of these good gifts of God, including wine, temperance is among the fruits of the spirit. Godly Noah drank the wine and became drunk, and he was uncovered within his tent. And then Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And told his two brethren without. And here we come to the sinful response to the sin of Noah. Ham, who was the second, the middle son of Noah, saw the nakedness of his father in the tent and went out of the tent to tell his two brothers. Now, what exactly happened here? There have been Differing interpretations of this text throughout history, even among Protestant Reformed writers, you can find in books published by the RFPA very different interpretations of the text. What exactly is the Holy Spirit teaching us here? What exactly happened here? It seems to me as I study and meditate and think about the text that the Holy Spirit is deliberately vague about the details, because I think they're gross details, of what happened in the tent of Noah that day. Deliberately vague. But this we can say in the first place. The text is clear that Ham sinned. We have to start there. The text is clear that Ham sinned. There is a writer... Protestant reform writer who tries to maintain that Ham really didn't sin. there's no proof that he sinned at all in the text. That's not true. It's very clear that Ham sinned. Ham is presented in the text in contrast to his two brothers. There's a sharp, clear contrast between the actions of Ham and the actions of Shem and Japheth, isn't there? And so I say, this first of all, Ham sinned. Ham sinfully responded to the nakedness and the drunkenness of his father. But what was the sin of Ham? His sin was not merely that he saw the nakedness of his father. But his sin is that he went and told his two brothers. Now, we are not told exactly why he went and tell them. We're not told exactly what was his motivation or what was his manner or why did he do that. But it seems obvious that if Ham, upon seeing the drunkenness and nakedness of his father, goes out of the tent to tell his brothers that Ham was motivated by sinful motives. Either Ham was puffed up with a sinful and self-righteous pride toward his father as he looked at him in his weakness and infirmity, in his drunken stupor, and he decided to go to his brothers and tell them all about the terrible, horrible sin of their father, sneering, wagging his head in self-righteousness. Or perhaps Ham had such a low view of sin... That when he saw the sin of his father, he just minimized it. He thought it was a joke. He thought it was laugh-worthy. And he went to tell his brothers to, to laugh with them about the weakness and the sin of their father to make light of it. Either way, that would be a sinful response to the sin of Noah. And what makes it worse is that Noah was his father. And Ham knew, because the law was written on his heart, that he must honor his father and his mother. But he didn't honor his father that day. He dishonored him when he went out to spread the news into the family of the drunkenness and nakedness of their father. Let us not commit the sin of Ham. Let us not seek to spread by gossip by backbiting the sins of others, including the sins of our own parents and grandparents. Let us not be eager to go and gossip with everybody about the sins of fellow believers, especially those of our parents. We are not to talk about the sins of other people as much as possible. Now, As we've seen recently in our own history, there is perhaps an exception to that, There is the sin of abuse, especially sexual abuse by a predator, by a man in power and authority, abusing someone under his power and authority in secret and trying to keep it secretive so that nobody will find out or expose him. That kind of a sin, if we are to discover it, should be exposed. We should tell others about it, but we should do that in the proper way. Bring it to the consistory and tell them, the gross sin of abuse that is taking place. But in regard to the vast majority of sins, we are not to go and tell everybody the sins that we have seen or the things that we have heard, as Ham did, particularly our own parents. Then we dishonor them and we smear their name. That was the sin of Ham. But some people take that and they say, because of that, Ham must have been an unbeliever. He must have perished. He must have gone to hell. But I disagree. I believe that Ham, who was among the eight people who were saved by the water of the flood in the ark, and Peter says in his epistle that eight souls were saved by water. I think that indicates that Ham was saved by the grace of God as well, and he went to heaven. Also in Genesis 9, verse 1, we read that God blessed Noah and his sons. God blessed Ham as well. Besides that, Ham is not personally cursed in the text, but his son Canaan is cursed. So there's good reason to believe that Ham was a child of God who fell into sin in this case. And therefore he stands as a warning to us as believers. Don't fall into the sin of Ham. But there seems to be more to this story than meets the eye. Though it is not immediately clear, perhaps, on the surface of the story when we examine it in more detail, and when we put together all the pieces of the puzzle, the Holy Spirit seems to be telling us here that what happened inside the tent of Noah was not only his drunkenness, and not only his nakedness, but gross sexual sin. And that perpetrated by his grandson, Canaan. Notice three things. To argue for that, first of all, throughout the text, the Holy Spirit, through Moses, focuses our attention on Canaan. Verse 18, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without And when Noah wakes up, verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, not cursed be Ham, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be. In verse 26, Canaan shall be the servant of Shem. Verse 27, Canaan shall be the servant of Japheth. Canaan, Canaan, Canaan. What did Canaan do to deserve this curse of God's wrath from Noah? In the second place, We ought to observe in verse 24 that when Noah awoke from his wine, we are told he knew what his younger son had done unto him. But the Hebrew of younger son could be better translated youngest son in this particular case. We should read the text. Noah knew what his youngest son had done unto him. But as we have seen, Ham was not the youngest son of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But Japheth, the youngest son of Noah, he did not perpetrate this sexual sin, obviously. So who then is Noah referring to when we are told he knew what his youngest son had done unto him? Canaan is the only other person in the text. Canaan, who was the youngest son of Ham, And therefore, quite possibly, the youngest grandson of Noah, the youngest boy in the whole of the clan of Noah, was Canaan. And when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest grandson had done unto him. If that's only referring to Ham, that he knew what Ham did unto him, First of all, Ham is not his youngest son. And secondly, what did Ham do unto him? Well, it's true that he spread the news of what Noah had done, but he didn't do anything to Noah directly. But Noah knew what his youngest son had done unto him. And what did his youngest grandson do unto him when he was in a drunken stupor? How did Noah become naked there in his tent? Was it the case that he uncovered himself, or was it that someone else uncovered him? In the third place, then, we turn to Leviticus 18. And in that passage, Moses, who wrote the same words of our text, also wrote the laws against sexual sins. And he writes this, None of you shall approach To any that is near of kin to him, to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother thou shalt not uncover. She is thy mother. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. There's a law against the sexual sin of incest. And then furthermore, in verse 22 of that chapter, Moses writes, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. There God expresses in his law his prohibition of homosexuality. Homosexual incest. Verses 24 and 25. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these The nations are defiled, which I cast out before you, and the land is defiled. Therefore, I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. He's talking about the Canaanites. The Canaanites were a nation descended from Canaan who were characterized by incest, homosexuality, And all kinds of sexual immorality. When Noah came to his senses and sobered up, he knew what had been done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. The curse that Noah spoke upon Canaan was that he would be a servant of servants. A servant is the lowest class of society, especially in those days. A servant was a slave to his master. He had no freedom. He had no land. He had no property or possessions. He was a slave. A servant of servants is the lowest of the low. A slave Of the slaves. That was the curse that was pronounced on Canaan. He would be debased to the lowest rung of society. When Noah cursed Canaan, we have to understand he was not just waking up in a rage and in fuming hot wrath, spewing forth his revenge and his curses on Canaan. No. Noah was a man of God. He was a believer who loved and walked with God. And when he sobered up, we ought to understand that he was sorry for his own sin too. And when he began to speak, he spoke as a prophet. He spoke under the inspiration of the Spirit when he said, Cursed be Canaan for the wickedness that he has done. And the proof of that is that this curse came to pass. The rest of the history of the Old Testament makes clear that this was indeed a prophecy because God fulfilled those words of Noah upon the Canaanites. He did that, for example, when he rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. In the genealogy, we saw that Sodom and Gomorrah were descended from Canaan. They were Canaanites. Those cities that were known for the gross sin of homosexuality and other sins were destroyed by God. They were cursed. And they were destroyed by fire and brimstone. And then further on in the history, when God brought Israel out of Egypt by Moses and into Canaan by Joshua, it was through the Israelites that God destroyed the Canaanites. He brought down the walls of Jericho, smashing down on top of them. And the Israelites went in and utterly destroyed them. And they fought battles against all the Canaanite peoples and destroyed them. And some people criticized God for that. They criticized the God of the Bible as if he's some wrathful tyrant. But no, he's a just God. He's a holy God. He destroyed them in fulfillment of the prophecy and as a just judgment for all their abominations. These were people who offered up their babies as sacrifices to their idols. These are people who engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality, just like our society today. God destroyed them when they filled up the cup of iniquity, the curse upon Canaan. As I finish up the second point of the sermon, I come back to the point I made in the introduction And it should be clear at this point that there's no justification whatsoever in the text for a racist attitude toward people of another color of skin or nationality. For white people to think of themselves as superior to black people, there was a time in the past during the heyday of colonialism when the European nations would refer to this text As a justification for what they were doing in Africa. Killing, destroying, and enslaving the black people. As if that was justified. As if this was the curse on Ham. As if they were just carrying out God's will. But keep in mind, the curse was on Canaan. Not on Ham. God didn't curse all of the descendants of Ham. Although he didn't continue his covenant with them in the Old Testament, neither did he with Japheth. The curse was upon Canaan for his vile homosexual incest with his grandfather. And that was carried out upon the Canaanites. And then consider, too, in Isaiah chapter 19, for example, God prophesies that he will bless some of the descendants of Ham. Remarkably, he says, Egypt is my people. And Egypt will bless the name of the Lord, Isaiah 19:18 through 25. And then consider finally that in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ sends us out to preach the gospel in all nations. What would be the point of preaching in the nations that descended from Ham if they're all under the curse and if God doesn't intend to save any of them? The curse was upon Canaan, and God destroyed them. And God will destroy all those who descend from the covenant line, who apostatize and fall into such gross sins. That brings us finally to the godly response of Shem and Japheth. We are told in the text, verse 23, that Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness that was the proper response to Noah's sin they took a garment shem and japheth laid it on their shoulders and they walked backward into the tent because they did not want to see their father in that state they had no interest they had no curiosity to see their father in his shameful fall and sin. They wanted to cover it. They wanted to hide it. They walked backward, and they covered their naked father in the tent. The scriptures teach in Proverbs 17, verse 9, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends first peter 4 verse 8 and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves for charity love shall cover the multitude of sins let us follow in the footsteps of shem and japheth and especially with regard to the sins of our parents and grandparents let us seek love let us seek to cover their sins But now, covering those sins is not the same as covering up those sins. Covering up those sins means that we pretend as if it's not happening. It means that we entirely ignore it. It means we do nothing about it. The scriptures don't praise that. The scriptures call us to do the hard thing go to your brother. Tell him his fault between you and him alone, in private. And it may be that you will bring your brother, it could even be your own father or grandfather, to repentance. Go to them. Tell them their sin in love and humility. Don't cover it up, but cover it. Don't tell others about it. Don't spread it hither, thither, and yon. Cover it up. Cover it, rather. Hide it and deal with it privately and properly. That's what Shem and Japheth did. When Noah awoke from his drunkenness, he spoke the second prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Notice, first of all, these words were a doxology. Not blessed be Shem, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. That's a doxology, that's a word of praise. Noah lifted up his eyes to the heavens, humbled by his own sin, but also humbled by the godly response of his oldest son and youngest son. Blessed be Jehovah, the God of Shem, because Jehovah has worked in Shem, my son, in his heart, the grace and the love for me to respond to my sin in this way, to cover me, to confront me, to correct me. Blessed be the Lord. But then that word was also a prophecy. Not only blessed be the God of Shem, but blessed be all those who will come from the line of Shem, whose God is the Lord, that was a prophecy. And we know that because God fulfilled this prophecy as well. He continued his covenant through the line of Shem from that point forward. When we look at the line of Shem, when we follow it, we find that it leads to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to the nation of Israel. And finally, it leads to To Jesus Christ, our Lord. The line of Shem. This was a prophecy and a blessing upon Shem and his line. That God would continue his covenant through Shem. All the way down to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ, who did the greater thing than Shem. All that Shem did was took a garment and covered Noah with that garment. But Jesus took his own blood. And covered us with that. So that our sin would not be seen in the eyes of God. But that our sin would be forever forgiven. And then finally, God promised to enlarge Japheth, the youngest son of Noah. And to make him dwell in the tents of Shem. This too is a prophecy. That although God would continue his covenant in the line of Shem... Eventually, he would enlarge Japheth. That is, he would enlarge the elect, redeemed seed of Japheth. Whereas, for many centuries, the seed of Japheth would walk in idolatry, just like the seed of Ham, God would enlarge Japheth eventually. He would open up his covenant to Japheth and draw in the descendants of Japheth into his church and covenant. And God fulfilled that promise On the day of Pentecost, when our Lord Jesus Christ poured out his spirit, and the apostles went out into the nations of Japheth first. To Greece and Rome, to Spain and Germany, into Europe. And the children of Japheth were brought into the church through the gospel. That continues today. God continues to enlarge Japheth and to bring the descendants of Japheth, probably all of us sitting here this day, into the tents of Shem, grafting us into the tree of Israel, into the covenant of grace. Our hope is for the great day when the Lord comes again. And that day will come only after he has finished gathering all of his children from the line of Shem and the line of Ham and the line of Japheth through the preaching of the gospel in all these nations. Then we will gather with all the redeemed in heaven and we will sing together as one great chorus, a multitude that no one can number. Blessed be the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. We thank thee, Father, for thy word and pray that thou would bind it on our hearts with all of its warnings and comfort, with all of its admonitions and instruction. May it be a rich blessing to us as we go forth from church today, as we go to work this week, as we live with our families. Bless us. And be with us. Forgive us.